here at the church. Uh, All things new, hope at the revelation of King Jesus. We are in chapter 14 today, and so uh, if you have a Bible, you can flip there or you know, open up your smartphone app to it. Um, there are some Bibles out on the table, so if you do need a Bible uh, and want a physical Bible, there should be some Bibles out on the welcome table, and if you don't have one, you can keep that one. That's our gift to you. Well, there's a story of a manager worked in an office, and uh, one day he took a co-worker with him on a a routine sort of sales call, and in the midst of that, they were uh, following a GPS to get to the place that they were going, and as the GPS kind of told them to turn, they turned immediately and ended up in a lake. The manager returned to the office and declared that technology drove him into a lake. Uh, If you uh, are aware of the television show The Office, this is a story from The Office, Or Michael Scott declares that, you guys are like, wait a second, is that, uh, what is that? (laughs) So he declared that technology had driven him into a lake. He uh, was following and, and, you know, it told him to turn clearly at a road ahead, but he turned immediately. He listened exactly to what it said and turned immediately. Well, sometimes when we are following Jesus, it feels like we're getting led into a lake. It feels like we are following what he tells us to do, and we turn around and we're in the middle of a lake, and the world looks at us like they looked at Michael Scott in that scene to say, I think you're just an idiot. (laughs) I don't think that you are understanding correctly where you were supposed to be going. Certainly, if we are to think about the first century believers that John is writing this book to, they could look at their lives and say, it looks like Jesus has led us into a lake. They're facing persecution and suffering. They are going to be maligned by the world around them. Some of them are going to be killed for following Jesus. Sometimes it just feels that way. Sometimes in your life it feels that way. There's some situation in your workplace and somebody a coworker or a boss is asking you to do something unethical and you refuse to do it and you look like you got water in your shoes because you've led to a place that it's going to affect you. You might suffer for that. You might face consequences for that. You might make some decisions in your life because of you following Jesus that the world looks at you and just says, do you know that you're missing out on all the good stuff? Like you could have so much more in your life. You're missing out on all of it. Why are you following that way? Sometimes when you feel that and you feel like you're right in the middle of the lake, you think, what did I do? Maybe I should follow something else. We're tempted to go a different direction and follow something or someone else because it looks like we've led our lives into a foolish place. Well, this book, Revelation, is written exactly for moments like that. Exactly for moments like that, for us to remember we follow King Jesus. Right at the heart of Revelation 14, I'm going to kind of focus uh, this morning. Oh, are we good? Yep, there we go. Whoop, I went ahead, sorry. I'm going to focus this morning on Revelation 14.4. 
Uh, they have kept themselves, this is speaking of the church, and, and we'll give the context and all this stuff in a moment, but they have kept themselves as pure as virgins following the Lamb wherever He goes. They have been purchased from among the people on the earth as a special offering to God and to the Lamb. The focus of this section is focusing on who the church is and what they do. And what they do is they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Wherever He goes. They follow the Lamb. So what does it mean for us to be a people that follows the Lamb wherever He goes? Well, I think there's a number of things that it means, but the first thing that it means is that we worship Jesus. The first thing it means is that we worship Jesus. All right, to give a little context, Revelation 14, 1 through 5, uh, and remember, we had just gotten out of uh, last week, uh, you know, you guys got all the information on the Mark of the Beast and 666 and all those things if you missed it. Uh, it's not as wild as, as you think it might be, so you, you can listen to that <laughs> on, our, on our podcast. But uh, we just got out of this section, right? The beast from the sea representing uh, wicked governments against, uh, right, right, representing the empire against the church. And the beast out of the land representing false teaching. And Jesus conquers both, right? That they uh, are really... Uh, acting out against the church, and the church is called to suffer in the midst of it, knowing that Jesus has already conquered. And so John sees a new thing. He sees a new vision. And remember, this is not a chronological set of things, right? John is seeing a new vision in the midst of this. This is not trying to set out, this happens, then this happens, then this happens. It's just not how apocalyptic literature works. Uh, and, and we'll see that pretty vividly today. Then I saw the Lamb standing on Mount Zion... Mount Zion in the Old Testament is the place in which Jerusalem sits and the place in which God dwells with his people, right? So there's the physical mount, but it really points forward to the spiritual Mount Zion, the coming Jerusalem, the coming city of God, the new heavens and new earth. And when John says here that he sees the lamb standing on Mount Zion, he's seeing what he's going to describe later in 21 and 22, the end of all things, right? He's seeing this glorious picture in which Jesus is going to return and set up his kingdom. He saw, and, and with him, with the lamb, were 144,000 who had his name on his and his father's name written on their foreheads. Again, remember, 144,000, symbolic number, right? Right? Twelve tribes of Israel and 12 apostles, right? And you put that together, times it by a thousand, which just means big, right? And you get 144,000, right? So it's just this like, hey, it's the fullness of God's people. That's what that means, right? It's not an exact number, right? And also, remember the sealing or the writing of a name on the forehead is the sealing of uh, we own you. Like, you are mine. I have called you out and you, I have purchased you. You are mine. I am setting my mark upon you. So not a physical writing on the forehead, but these are, these, this is the church, right? The picture that John sees is the fullness of the church with Jesus in Mount Zion. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of a mighty ocean waves or the rolling of loud thunder. It was like the, many, or like the sound of many harpists playing together. This great choir sang a wonderful new song in front of the throne of God. 
and before the, 20, the four living beings and the 24 elders. No one could learn this song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. They, the 144,000, have kept themselves as pure as virgins following the Lamb wherever He goes. They have been purchased from among the people on the earth as a special offering to God and to the Lamb. They have told no lies. They are without blame. Well, the first thing that we need to see about what it means to follow the Lamb wherever He goes is that we worship the Lamb. What John sees, and every time he sees these pictures, we've seen this throughout, right? The church, when they are gathered around Jesus, they're singing a new song to him. They're singing a song to him. And in other places that we've already been through, right, you get some, some actual words to these songs, right? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, for you purchased people from every tribe and language and people and nation for God. They sing to Jesus about what he has done. The focus is on Jesus and worshiping Him. So following the Lamb wherever He goes, if we are to be defined as the people who follow the Lamb wherever He goes, the first thing we need to know is that we worship Jesus. We say this a lot around here, but the reality is we talk a lot about uh, 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 actions that, uh, that Christians ought to per- pursue in light of the gospel. We talk a lot about what does it mean for us to be Christians who pursue justice and mercy in our city. And not just talk about things, but actually go out and live those out. That we live lives where we actually love our neighbors and our enemies. None of that means that we shift our focus away from worshiping King Jesus. That's the most primary thing we do. The most primary thing we do as a church is gather together on Sunday morning to worship King Jesus. And we do that so that we train our hearts that every day when we wake up, our job is to worship King Jesus because he's worthy. He is worthy because he purchased us with his very own blood so that we would be his people. He's worthy of all worship and honor and praise. He is God. He is king. He is worthy of all our worship. And this is the focus of our church. It has to be the focus of our church. It has to continue to be the focus of our church. And here's why it has to continue to be the focus. Because if we lose focus on worshiping Jesus, it doesn't mean that we stop worshiping. It means we start worshiping something else. We'll see this exactly in the description that comes to follow. 6 through 11. And I saw another angel flying through the sky, carrying the eternal good news to proclaim to the people who belong to this world. Remember, There's the 144,000 or the people of heaven and the people who belong to this world is kind of a catchphrase for those who do not follow Christ. Those who do not believe the gospel. Those who are a part of this world. To proclaim to the people who belong to this world to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Fear God, he shouted. Give glory to him for the time has come when he will sit as judge. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all the springs of water. Now there's some debate among commentators whether or not this is uh, the proclamation of the gospel in the sense that there is time for you to still repent and join the family of God or whether this is announcing that because of the good news of the gospel, because of God's work on the cross, judgment is coming 
for those who have not repented of their sins, right? He's certainly announcing a warning that judgment is coming, uh, but whether John is seeing him announce it as, hey, hey, the end is coming and is here now, or giving space and warning to folks doesn't really, uh, it, it matters, but doesn't really matter in terms of our application of that text to us today because we're not right there. We're not at the end time. We're not at the time in which Jesus is coming to judge right now. And as the scriptures say, if today is called today, it's the day of salvation. It's the day to repent and believe the gospel. It's the day to turn to Jesus because he will come to judge the living and the dead. He will come to execute God's wrath upon the globe because of our sin because of our brokenness, because of the way in which we have harmed one another, because of the way in which we have disregarded him, because he is worthy of worship, and the way in which we have not worshipped him is worthy of judgment. And so the angel is warning, as I now warn you, fear God, turn to him in worship, because he actually longs to be with you. He longs to be with you. Then another angel followed him through the sky, shouting, Babylon is fallen, that great city is fallen, because she made all the nations of the world drink the wine of her passionate immorality. Remember, Babylon and the beasts, right? Same, it's just kind of describing uh, two different vivid word pictures describing the same thing. Babylon is the city of this world, the empire, the, the culmination of everything in which uh, King Jesus is not on the throne. So if King Jesus is not physically on the throne, you live in Babylon. Friends, we live in Babylon. That's it. We live in Babylon. And what Jesus says is Babylon has fallen. Right? This angel declares Babylon has fallen. It's over. Babylon loses. Right? The next vision section that we're going to jump into is going to vividly describe Babylon losing. Right? Remember, there are these seven sections of Revelation, and, and we're, we're ending one of those sections today, and we're moving towards a, a more vivid uh, description of Babylon losing. We're going to get back to this phrase here in a moment. The world uh, uh, made all the nations of the world drink the wine of her passionate immorality. Then a third angel followed them, shouting, Anyone who worships the beast and his statue or accepts his mark on the forehead or on the hand must drink the wine of God's anger. It has been poured full strength into God's cup of wrath, and they will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. The smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever, and they will have no relief day or night, for they have worshipped the beast and his statue and accepted the mark of his name. Now remember, mark of his name is not something that you can accidentally do by taking a COVID vaccine or any other sort of thing, right? That's not the mark of the beast. You can't accidentally do this. It means that you've identified yourself with the people that are against God. You've identified yourself with those not with Christ. You've not identified yourself with Christ. And that means you've identified yourself with Babylon. Or the beast. You have worshipped him. You see, what, what I said earlier is that if we lose our focus on Jesus, it's not that we stop worshipping. It's that we actually begin worshipping something else. We actually begin worshipping something else. We are still worshipping 
everyone is a worshiper. And what you worship depends on who you are and where you're at in life, but you are worshiping. Just ask yourself the question, what do I fear losing most? It will start to tell you some of the things that you might be worshiping. What do I fear losing most? What is at the core of my being? What do I go to sleep thinking about at night and wake up thinking about in the morning? What consumes everything that I am? What do I find most joy and satisfaction in? And what do I give my time, money, and energy to? All of those describe worship. It's what it means to worship Jesus, right? We give our time, money, and energy to the church and to Jesus and what he is doing. We think and pray about the Lord. We delight in who he is. We enjoy him. And when we're seeing worship as what we enjoy, what we delight in, what we give ourselves over to, we can see how we actually often slip into worshiping something else. We actually slip into worshiping the beast, Babylon. Everything around us tries to get us to do that very thing. If you would just have this product, you'll be okay. If you could just have this relationship, you'll be okay. If you could just be more fully yourself, you will be okay. If you could get that job, if you could get that amount of money that you're looking for, you'll be okay. If your family looks the way that you want it to look, if your kids are okay in the way that you want them to be okay, you will be okay. All of those things are just messages trying to get our hearts to worship the things of this world. Now, now, I'm not saying that that means that we don't have jobs anymore and we don't have kids anymore and we don't have, right? Like, here's the thing about idolatry. It's far more difficult to uh, uh, undo because it's, we take good things and we make them into God things. Right? We take good things and we start to worship them. It doesn't mean we get rid of the good things. It means we replace that with the worship of King Jesus. We have to actually positively replace it with the worship of King Jesus. And if we're not doing that, we end up worshiping the beast. We end up submitting to the beast instead of submitting to King Jesus. That's the second thing that it means to follow the lamb wherever he goes is submit to him. They have kept themselves as pure as virgins, following the Lamb wherever He goes. They have been purchased from among the people on the earth as a special offering to God and to the Lamb. He goes on to say in 12, This means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently, obeying His commands and maintaining their faith in Jesus. If we're going to be the people that follow the Lamb wherever He goes, we have to submit to what Jesus actually tells us means we have to understand and learn from the scriptures. What does Jesus require of us? What is he asking us to do? What is he telling us where life is to be found? And will we submit to him? What does he command? And why do we follow it? Right? That's what it means to submit to the lamb. That we are searching the scriptures to see what does God command of us. And we're searching the scriptures because we want to know what God commands of us, not what other people who claim to follow Jesus command of us, right? 
Don't ever follow what Jesus, or don't ever follow what I tell you to do unless it's rooted in what Jesus has already said. Because I could be wrong. I often am. Ask my family. My children will especially tell you how wrong I am all the time, right? I, am a, I can be wrong. I can slip into things. We can all slip into things in which we add commands to what it means to follow Jesus, which is why we've got to know what Jesus tells us. The reason we study the Bible, the reason we dig into the Scriptures, the reason we spend time in God's Word is not to simply check off some box to say, hey, we did it and we are good. It's just the, the duty to say, right? Actually, there is no command for you to read your Bible every day. The reason we do it is so that we know what commands do you actually have for us, Jesus? We want to know what you have for us. We want to know what you require of us. We want to submit to you because you walked out of a tomb. Because you died for us and then you walked out of a tomb. You get the final say. You're king. End of story. And we follow you because you're good. Because when we follow you, we actually walk in the way in which the world was meant to be. We walk in the things in which God has good for us. And so we follow Jesus. Now, the reason that we sometimes slip and fall away from following Jesus in these things comes back to what it said about Babylon here. Babylon has fallen, that great city has fallen, because she made all the nations of the world drink the wine of her passionate immorality. Now remember, throughout the book of Revelation, when it talks about passionate immorality or sexual immorality or some of these things, it's a word picture oftentimes for idolatry, which is what God says often throughout the scriptures, right? Christ is the uh, groom of the church, his bride, and so uses this language of immorality uh, and adultery to describe idolatry. So what they're describing here is all forms of immorality for sure, but chiefly idolatry. And we are tempted to worship Babylon when we submit to the drunkenness of her immorality. Right? The reality is you may think, if you're not following Jesus, that you are master and commander of your own way. You are doing what you want to do which just so happens to be what everyone else in our culture also wants to do. It's a strange thing, right? We're super independent, and yet we do exactly what everyone else wants us to do. Because we're actually pretty fickle. We're actually pretty easily swayed in any number of ways. We actually are tempted to worship Babylon when we submit to the drunkenness of her immorality. Right? The reason it talks, the reason it uses this phrase of drunkenness, right, is because in drunkenness you are giving up control to something else. And when we are not actively following Jesus and making sure we stay, what Paul says, right, is sober-minded. Sober-minded and watch it, watchful of ourselves. Then we submit ourselves to the drunkenness of the world around us. And we are duped into following Babylon. It happens so quickly and easily. We think that we're just pursuing good things and then we just kind of forget to keep following Jesus. 
And then we make just, well, it's just a small thing. I know that it's a little unethical, but I'm going to cut this corner here. But when I get to the top of this company, I won't have to cut corners anymore. I'll get to be in charge, and then I won't have to cut corners anymore. But one cut corner here, one cut corner here, and all of a sudden, you're in charge of a pretty unethical operation. How do we get there? One tiny step at a time, right? How do we get to places uh, in our own lives of sin that we never thought we'd be at? One tiny step at a time. It's one tiny step of giving up control. Why is one of the fruit of the Spirit self-control? Because if we no longer submit ourselves to King Jesus and submit ourselves to the Spirit at work in us, we will give up control to the world around us and just follow wherever anyone else is leading. We'll submit to Babylon. We'll be deceived and tempted to walk away from Jesus and give ourselves over to the idols of the world. And it's because we don't recognize that there are spiritual forces at work behind all those things. The reality is, John is describing for us, there's an enemy. Babylon is not our friend. We're in enemy territory. And so we have to be cautious as to how we pursue those things. We become vulnerable to not obey the commands of God when we have bought into the allure of idols and that submits us to the beast, to Babylon, and the drunkenness of their immorality. So, if we're to avoid that, right? If we're to avoid that, we have to worship Jesus and submit to Jesus. And what that's going to bring is suffering. If we're to submit to Jesus and worship Jesus, it's going to bring suffering. This means, that remember, this was actually the phrase that John used in the last chapter. The point of all the stuff about the beast is not figuring out who the beast is and figuring out what the mark is and making sure you don't accidentally get it, like walk into a, you know, a movie theater and somebody stamps your hand real quick and you're like, oh, shoot, it's over. Ah, I was so close. I was so careful. No, 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 that's not it. Right? And that's not the point of that passage. The point of that passage, he says very clearly, right? This means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently and remain faithful. Says it again in 14. This means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently, obeying his commands and maintaining their faith in Jesus. Suffering patiently. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this down. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they are blessed indeed, for they will rest from their hard work, for their good deeds follow them. If we're going to follow Jesus, sometimes it leads us to the middle of a lake of suffering. Sometimes it leads us to a place in which we feel like we're in a dark place of pain and suffering. But if we're going to follow Jesus, that's the way of following Jesus. Because we're following who? We're following the Lamb. What did the lamb do? The lamb suffered in our place on the cross. The lamb lamb went to the place of suffering first for glory later. The lamb was willing to love people, his enemies, 
unto death, not their death, but his. And that's what we do. Now there's another kind of suffering that is talked about here. The contrast between Babylon and the church continues. Then a third angel, we already read this, shouting, anyone who worships the beast and his statue or accepts his mark on their forehead and on the hand must drink the wine of God's anger. It has been poured full strength into God's cup of wrath and they will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. The smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever and they will have no relief day or night for they have worshipped the beast and and his statue and have accepted the mark of his name. This is a, a truly terrifying picture. Now, again, figurative language is used here to describe the terror of what it means to endure the wrath of God. The reality is the book of Revelation is very clear. Not specifically on the nature of hell, but on the, 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 the basics of understanding that there is real judgment and eternal torment. Fire is a figurative piece here for sure. We don't know exactly what it will look like for all eternity for people to suffer under the wrath of God. But this text makes very clear that that is what will happen. There is a warning. And again, as we've said earlier, if, if in an earlier message, if conversations of judgment gives you some sort of joy or pleasure, we are not following the Lamb. This should cause us to weep. I think it's Charles Spurgeon that said he would rather sit and weep than preach on hell, which is exactly how I feel. This is a tough text. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. And it's terrifying because I know Apart from the Lamb's work, it's what I deserve. It's what my sin deserves. And it is truly terrifying. Which is the point. is to cause us to say, we want to be with the Lamb and not follow the beast who will lose. Continues on. Then I saw a white cloud and seated on the cloud was someone like the Son of Man. Again, a reference to Daniel. Right? This is a reference to Jesus. He had a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came from the temple and shouted to the one sitting on the cloud, Swing the sickle, for the time of harvest has come. The crop on earth is ripe. Again, something that is sort of in our popular cultural understanding of hell. Right, If you talk to people, they have this understanding that Satan rules hell. And well, at least I'd rather be there with my friends than worship some other thing. Not the picture. We'll see Satan and the beast are thrown into the lake of fire, the same place. They lose. They're in hell, suffering under the wrath of God. Jesus rules over hell. God rules over hell. There will be no mocking of God at the end of the ages. He is creator and king, and he wins in the end. So the one sitting on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the whole earth was harvested. After that, another angel came from the temple in heaven. He also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel who had power to destroy with fire came from the altar. He shouted to the angel with the sharp sickle, Swing your sickle now to gather the clusters of grapes from the vines of the earth, for they are ripe for judgment. So the angel swung his sickle over the earth and loaded the grapes into the great winepress of God's wrath. 
The grapes were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress in a stream about 180 miles long and as high as a horse's bridle. It's the end of this section of Revelation. This, this section is, finishes in this spot with a truly terrifying picture of judgment. Certainly a figurative picture of judgment, but the figurative meaning is very clear. This is very bad. Right? There is, uh, the, the 180 miles is a translation of the 1600 stadia, which some of your translations might, sta- might say, so a, a different form of measurement. But uh, a horse's bridle is about five feet tall, right? It's like where the horse's mouth is. So what this says is 180 miles blood, five feet high. Um, some people have made some calculations that the don't recommend looking up the blogs, they're kind of weird, uh, uh, that, that have made some of the calculations, but the, the estimates are in the hundreds of millions of people that this represents, or the hundreds of trillions, depending upon how you uh, measure the width of this stream or understand it. Uh, the point of it is to say that's more people than have ever existed, right? Uh, because the point of what Revelation is saying is speaking in hyperbole to say this is all people that aren't a part of the 144,000, right? The number is just meant to say everyone apart from the church. Everyone. Which is why, again, right, we can't read Revelation chronologically because when you get to the Battle of Armageddon, it would be a short battle because everyone's literally gone, right? Because the chapter before, everyone's gone, right? So if this is chronological, there's no one left after this point because the numbers are truly terrifying, So it can't be chronological. But this figurative picture is meant to sit with us and to force us to reckon with the reality that judgment is real and really coming. But today is the day of salvation in which we follow the Lamb. So it's not something that we pursue gleefully. It's not something that we... uh, gloat over those who don't follow Jesus. It's not something that we try to coerce people into following Jesus because of. What it is, is a warning for us to say, what does it mean for us to take seriously the message of the gospel and to share it with everyone we know? If this is real, right? Not literally, but figuratively real, representing very real judgment. What are we doing in our lives to share the gospel with the people we love? Now, I don't mean beating them down with it or going around in, uh, immediately and declaring in this very judgment of, uh, ju- judgment-driven way of like, you know, shouting at them about these things. I mean, are we doing the hard work to build relationships with people, to love people, to listen to them, and to follow the Lamb in calling people to a better way? Are we willing to do that? Because there's this other piece of following the Lamb wherever he goes, and it's glory. There's no, Babylon, there's no glory for Babylon. Babylon's glory is now. It's right now. Remember what they said about Babylon, what they said about the beast from the sea? Who is as great as the beast, they exclaim? Who is able to fight against him? Babylon's glory is right now, and it's a diminished glory. Nothing compared to what we receive in the new heavens and new earth 
Romans 8, Paul says this, Yet we, what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. And Paul knew suffering greatly. John knows suffering greatly. He's writing this letter, this book, from exile. The church knew suffering greatly. And it is nothing to be compared with the glory He will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who His children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us, as a foretaste of the future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. The reality of this, this, this passage is crazy because what it says is, something we all recognize, that creation around us is broken and is, is literally groaning, right? There is natural disasters and other pieces and just the brokenness around us is evidence that creation is literally just groaning to be released from this brokenness. We see it every day. We see it around us all the time. But what Paul says here is that creation is groaning for the greater thing to be revealed so that it can then join What's the greater thing to be revealed? You! It's longing to see you, the 144,000, the beautiful bride of Christ, resurrected in glory with their Savior Jesus. And then the creation itself will join in this resurrection hope. But the glory that's ready to be revealed is you. Following the Lamb wherever He goes means that we are following Him into suffering and into glory in which we will be transformed. We will be really you. You will be really you. But you will be resurrected you. Glorified you. We will be together in this new place. Revelation is has these dark, dark shadows so that the light shines even brighter. Now, how do we do this? How do we follow the Lamb wherever He goes? Well, following the Lamb wherever He goes means that we've been purchased. They have been purchased from among the people of the earth as a special offering to God and to the Lamb. The only way we follow the Lamb wherever He goes is to recognize that we've been purchased by that very Lamb to be his own. It's not something that we can do on our own. We are unworthy of walking through this. We are unworthy of being those who follow the Lamb because we run the other way all the time. Even with the Holy Spirit, we run the other way all the time. Imagine what we'd be like without that. We run away from the Lamb all the time. The reason we get access to this is because He did the work for us. He purchased us from among the people of the earth. So if you're here today and you're among the people of the earth, meaning that you're a human and you were born here, right? You can be those that were purchased by the Lamb. 
place your faith in Jesus. He will do all the work. He has already done all the work. He has accomplished everything necessary for us to follow Him, suffer, and make it to glory because He loves us. Because He loves us. He spilled His very own blood for you so that you can make it to this glorious place. And so because of that, because of His purchasing of us, we worship Him. Because of His purchasing of us, we submit to Him as Lord. Because of His purchasing of us, we suffer patiently under persecution. And because of His love for us and His purchasing of us, we have this hope for glory. So, if you find yourself today with water in your shoes, looking foolish because you've been following the Lamb, you're in good company. The world may see what we do as foolishness. But all we can say is we follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Because where else are we going to go? Remember when Jesus is with His disciples and He gives them this hard teaching and a bunch turn away. And He turns to the disciples and says, are you going to go too? And they said, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Friends, there's no other place to go. We follow the Lamb wherever He goes. So let's pray that God would help us as a church submit ourselves to King Jesus and be willing to follow Him wherever he goes. Not wherever we want to go. Wherever he goes. Because he has purchased us and he loves us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come to you now and we pray that you would help us to follow you wherever you go. Lord, we're weak. We are feeble. We are divided sometimes in our own hearts whether we want to follow you or not. We're always hedging our bets. I'm going to follow Jesus, but I'm not fully all in because what if it's not real? What if I, what if I have to suffer too much? What if I have to... Jesus, would you just show us your grace? Would you show us your glory? Would you impress upon our hearts who you are and what you have done so that we no matter what happens, would follow you wherever you lead. Jesus, we love you. Make us love you more. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.